Good afternoon and welcome to the 133rd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today is the second of my teaching COVID-19 sessions. Today I'm talking with Sarah Raskin and Nicole Welk-Yeager. Just a moment, just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also catch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and also on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 23, 2020, there are 31,728,021 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 31,433,180 yesterday. 6,921,817 of those are in the United States. That's up from 6,882,969 yesterday. There are now a total of 201,459 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 200,477 reported yesterday, another day with 1,000 deaths day to day. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline, he worked as a janitor at the university where he was studying. He died from coronavirus, just 20 credits shy of graduating. This is by Katia Goba. Uh, this appeared in BuzzFeed, April 28th. Darren Adams made a living cleaning the halls of Wayne State University in Detroit. As a custodian there for six years, he helped keep the school tidy, but he was also there to make a new life for himself. The 54-year-old had spent several stints in prison on theft and drug offenses, according to his fiancee, Regine Woolfork. But Adams was determined to turn his life around. After a couple of years working at the school, he enrolled himself in 2016. He chose to major in sociology, pursuing a Bachelor of Arts degree. Eager to learn, he sat in the front row of his classes, dressed in the college's sports swag. He asked nuanced questions and spoke poignantly about issues of race. He had a 3.64 GPA. The university said he was an all-star student. For Adams, this new beginning was sacred. He made a pact with God that if he got out this time, he would make changes and wouldn't go back to prison, Woolfork told BuzzFeed News. Adams, though, was not able to finish his dream. His story of redemption ended on April 3rd when he died after nearly a month of having COVID-19 symptoms, the disease caused by the novel coronavirus. He was just 20 credits shy of graduating. Wayne State University officials announced Adams would be posthumously awarded his bachelor's degree. Adams's commitment to his education and community will be remembered and missed, officials said. Adams first began to experience symptoms on March 13th. Three days later, he and his fiancee, with whom he shared a home, came down with fevers, his at 102, his, hers at 101. The couple sought help. They made two separate trips to urgent care. We had a hard time because nobody would let us in because we had fevers, said Wolfwork, who also tested positive for COVID-19 and was awaiting at the time the story came out, was awaiting results after quarantining for nearly a month. After landing at the Ascension Providence Hospital Emergency Room, each of them tested negative for the flu. They were given antibiotics and instructed to quarantine, according to Wolfwork. It was crippling, she said. Our bodies were aching, we were sweating, we had fevers, we couldn't eat, and the Z-Packs weren't doing it. So I said, we got to go back and find out what's going on. That's when I started getting worried. I'd never felt like this before. Two days later, the couple returned to the hospital. During this trip, Adams was diagnosed with double pneumonia and sent home with a prescription for an inhaler and other medications. The comments on his discharge papers noted worsening conditions, according to documents BuzzFeed News reviewed. Wolf Fork said Adams had a history of bronchitis and asthma. 
I just watched him decline, said Woolfork. I mean, I was sick too, but not as sick as he was because he was having problems breathing. She said her fiance struggled to find a comfortable resting position because of his respiratory complications. He finally resigned himself to sleeping on the living room sofa where he'd lay until March 23rd, 5.30 in the morning when emergency services knocked on the door responding to his call. They didn't even come inside because they said they couldn't get contaminated or whatever Wolfwork said. So Adams walked outside of his one family house and down two steps from his porch, he was put on a stretcher and admitted to Sinai Grace Hospital. That was the last time I saw him, said Wolfwork. The same day, Mi Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer directed all non-essential businesses to close and signed a statewide stay-at-home order, which went into effect on March 24th at midnight. Adams died some 10 days later. Friends and family members characterized Adams as a hard worker, a jokester, and someone who loved to dance. He always repped the men in the dance battles, his cousin Daryl Franklin told BuzzFeed News. He was the life of the party. When he came into the room, he was like a ball of energy, Wolfwork said of her fiance, who was affectionately called Red by friends and family. Adams was also a member of the AmeriCorps Urban Safety Program, working to increase public safety throughout his city. As part of the initiative, he helped board up more than 200 abandoned homes, many of which line routes that children in Detroit walk each day to get to school. Adams is survived by his own two children, a daughter, Layla, 17, and son, Darren, 33, as well as his fiance and four siblings. He was a good person who wanted to leave a mark on the world, said Wolfork, and he has done just that. Okay, let's turn to our conversation for today. So happy to have my guests and let me introduce them. Nicole Welk-Yeager is an interdisciplinary historian trained in the history of science, technology, and medicine, as well as anthropology. Her research focuses on human-animal relationships, particularly those that influence health and welfare as they're broadly construed and constantly redefined by agricultural and medical industries. She's currently a postdoctoral teaching fellow at North Carolina State University, and she's teaching courses in U.S. history, agricultural history, and history of science. Sarah Raskin is a medical anthropologist and assistant professor in the L. Douglas Wilder School of Government and Public Affairs at the Virginia Commonwealth University. She draws on her knowledge as a former public health practitioner at local and federal levels to teach urban health, public health emergency preparedness, and health across health policy across undergraduate and graduate levels. A self-described oral health equity evangelist and passionate Appalachianist, Sarah collaborates with a multidisciplinary team that investigates dental disparities and identifies policy and practice-based solutions to drive oral health equity in close relationship with community partners across the state. She's also a mom and aunt to elementary school-aged kids who are probably, like yours, listening um, getting through Zoom lessons one Zoom at a time. That's from her bio, and I absolutely love that line. And I want to um, thank you both for coming, and welcome, Nicole and Sarah. Thanks for coming on COVID Calls. Thank you for having us. So I'd like to start the way I usually do, which is just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there. Sarah, can I start with you, please? Sure. So um, thanks for having me. I um, live primarily in Washington, D.C., where, um, you know, the pandemic situation looks like all Zoom school for now. Uh, restaurants and bars and some businesses are open. Um, there is indication that we'll be moving into a better phase of reopening soon, but there's also a lot of critique because there's been some identification of dubious numbers so far as openings and closings. And so uh, I guess my best answer is, I don't know how it looks because um, data is challenging. And as far as your students, what's the situation in terms of return to classroom? Uh, yes. So actually, I'm appointed at a university in Richmond, Virginia. So I'm, I'm in, under typical circumstances in Richmond about a third of the time. Um, VCU did go ahead and have some on-campus um, courses this semester. I'm teaching all online. Um, they had some cases quite early as soon as they opened back up, at, including one cluster. Um, there were a number of critiques of how that was handled. And so there's more of a focus on surveillance right now, self-report, symptoms, that kind of thing. And as I understand it, some courses went online from the classrooms, but um, not being there on the ground. What I can tell you is that the students in my classrooms are 
almost entirely taking all their courses online right now. You know, for people who are in the greater DC area, I mean, it, you're always getting a lesson in federalism there, I guess, every single day, but you're seeing at close at hand how the district has handled this, how Maryland has handled this, and how Virginia has handled it. And it hasn't all been in sync, has it? No, uh, no. And, and even like kind of sub-regionally across that, I would say that there's more sync across the three um, units, uh, since we're not all states, um, than, than there um, maybe have been in other regions. So I'm thinking here about differences between like Kentucky and Tennessee. Um, but certainly um, there have been some distinctions. Um, and, and actually, you know, federalism is a major theme of my policy course. So uh, how federalism is playing out in the pandemic, but also even regionalism within states. So Virginia is a great case example of that, where wherein um, mayors and uh, and county leaders for a number of hotspots actually asked the governor to slow the reopening plans. And there was an initial um, agreement with that. And then subsequently, there was a lot of resistance at the state level, at the Commonwealth level to slow reopening plans, even as hotspots were continuing in Northern Virginia, in Richmond, in the Hampton Roads area. Mm. Um, conversely, we're, you know, I'm, I'm living, I'm literally looking, looking across the border at Maryland right now. Mm. And I, um, you know, I'm fascinated by how Maryland has in some ways really had tremendous leadership, including um, interacting at the international sphere, which kind of supersedes, um, you know, federal uh, policymaking. So with your question, you open up a whole mm -hmm. can of thoughts, but it, it's a very pertinent question. Right. And with a Republican governor in Maryland. Interesting. Okay, well, we'll. I'm sure we will return to federalism uh, as we hear more about your teaching at this time. Nicole, same question to you. Where are you calling from and, and how's it looking there today? Yeah, I'm calling in from Raleigh, North Carolina, and it's constantly fluctuating uh, here. Uh, but as I go outside, most people don't wear masks. It's a um, quite different approach to uh, the pandemic. Um, in North Carolina State, we're all online right now. Uh, they tried staying open uh, in the beginning and uh, some of us were allowed to have online courses. Many of us had hybrid and they all went online after two weeks. Um, and uh, as we're moving forward, we actually just got an email today that they're going to try to reopen in the spring face-to-face uh, -face teaching. and. Um, it was interesting because through that email at the very end of it, they were saying that it was much more contained um, surveillance, really important um, part and talking point in that email. They also said that it was spreading because of parties, uh, not from classrooms. So they had a very distinct um, differentiation between how it was spreading and what kind of social interactions were spreading coronavirus. So that I found that really fascinating. And it seems to be a debate that's happening within the universities down here. Um, we'll see. I, I recommended to have online classes for my spring course load. So we'll see how it goes. What's the upshot? I mean, I've heard this at other universities as well. The upshot of making that observation that the students are catching this and spreading it at social events. I mean, presumably, they still have to come if your notion is they're going to come to class, then they either have to choose to come to class and not party or party and not come to class. So there's something that doesn't add up here for me. Yeah, I think this is a big this is a big moment for many universities and speaking to what is the role of the university? What's the what why do we have a college? Is it for the experience? Is it for students to to live on campus and have that experience or is it to get a degree and have a certain type of classroom curricula learning? around that, and, it, and it's certainly both, but I think because there seems to be this, you have to choose one or the other, it's, I think a lot of universities are gonna be asking this in the next few months. Well, this is the topic for today. We're continuing a great discussion I had a couple of weeks ago about um, teaching COVID-19 as a subject um, in the midst of an ongoing pandemic. And um, just thrilled you're both willing to share your teaching experiences. I want to start with a kind of a general question just a, a, about you. And Nicole, let me start with you on this. Um, I've asked several people this question. If, person who, if you're a person who studies public health, history of medicine, disasters, and you're teaching it, and it's happening all simultaneously, it's an uncanny experience. It's hard to characterize, I think. 
And I just wonder how you've been processing that to, to live with it and to go through the steps you need to every day to protect yourself, your family, your colleagues, your community, your students, but then also somehow take some part of your brain aside and say, now this is the objective time in which I analyze this world in which I'm, I'm living. How do you think about that? Yeah, this is a good question and almost an impossible question to answer too because of the uncanniness. Um, but for me, I guess I, I have to go back to when it was happening in the spring and what that was like um, for me. Sorry, I just got a phone call on my watch. Um, when we were getting the first news of what was going on in Wuhan, China uh, in January, I mentioned it to my students in my history of public health class, like, oh, this is something that we wanna keep in mind and be aware of um, as we're moving forward. And we went through a unit on epidemics and then we kept on moving forward. And then we got to February and it really just kind of hit me and it hit the students as well, that we are living in the moment that we are studying simultaneously. Like we're looking in the past, we're looking at case studies in the past no, we're not understanding medicine the same way as those in the in the early 19th century. But boy, it was just seeing everyone kind of reorient the critical gaze on themselves. Um, and as someone who's trained in history and, and anthropology, I just kept on thinking reflexivity. Like we're in this, we have to recontextualize ourselves. Um, so I think when it really hit me is uh, when we were going through a, a an exercise in class, and I asked them if you are, um, if you're a librarian and you're working with a historian 30 years in the future, what's the one source that you would give a researcher studying this um, to understand what's going on in this moment? Um, and uh, they 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 love that question, but it also relayed to me that we are constantly creating primary sources, and so it's important for us to have conversations like this in a public sphere that's available to other people, understand that the technology in the, in the future might not be um, able to uh, provide the information that we're giving on Twitter and social media. It's a lot of information, it's a lot of data, it's overwhelming for the students. I think it's overwhelming for us as well. Um, but in knowing that um, just, for me, I, I like to journal and to write things down on paper, pen and paper of these moments and just reflecting, we're making primary sources um, and that transparency that we're all in this together has been something that keeps me oriented to this uncanny moment. Mm -hmm. What was your answer to your own question? What's what's the the one source that you would hand down to the archivist 30 years from now? It, I'm often amazed. I ask this question only half in jest because I catch myself sometimes asking very hard questions of students, and then I'm like, "Wait a minute, I, I should probably know the answer to that before, I, before I yeah. ask." But we we yeah. can't always wait to know the answer to ask a great question. Right? <laughs> no, and I think it changes every day. <laughs> we, we get sure, this new. Of course. Uh, it's like, do, do I want to give a, a source of uh, January to March <laughs> coronavirus or, or something later? And I think in the very beginning, they had these TikTok style videos, this competition for dances for people to wash their hands and all these jingles and these radio shows going, mm -hmm. here's 20 seconds of music. So, you know, the 20 seconds to wash your hands. That is probably what I would wow. give. Well, um, Sarah, let me ask you the same question. Thank you, Nicole. The, the, just the sort of your experience through this time, and particularly this issue of events catching up with you and catching up with things you study that are you know, in non-disaster time, and all of a sudden we're in disaster time, and you're both living, surviving, and teaching. Yes, thank you for asking. So, um, you know, a couple of different thoughts that are kind of scattershot, which probably also reflects my experience at the moment. Um, so, you know, um, I finally landed on this phrase not long ago, which is that this moment is full of the contradiction of both being too much and not enough, right? So for people like us, I'm going to make a guess that you are kind of overwhelmed with thought, with potential archives, with analysis, with Twitter connections. 
layer on top, you know, either your kids on Zoom school for eight hours a day or your kids on Zoom school for like a half an hour a day and then you got to fill in the rest. There's something about this like too much and yet also like not enough. And so I'm thinking, you know, not enough relief, not enough of a coordinated federal response for people who have unfortunately lost their jobs, you know, too much time on their hands, not enough kind of things to like move forward um, and in a way that keeps focus in that positive way that just kind of doing something can feel good. And so I'm having this very, like to be academic about it, this very Janice-faced experience of the moment. And I think it really is is what I hear reflected among people in you know my family, my colleagues, my, my peer community. But I also kind of wanna, um, layer on that it's not just the pandemic, right? So all it's the pandemic. It is also the election year. It is also the police involved or the police violence against black people and protesters. And it is um, also, you know, the, the protests in the street, et cetera. And so there's, there's kind of now, you know, RBG's death and like what's happening with that. There's, there's this whole kind of coalescing of catastrophes. And I kind of jokingly tweeted the other week that I took my daughter and my niece to see Black Panther for the first time ever on Black Lives Matter Plaza in DC. They had never seen a superhero movie before. They they both, you know, are kind of young and are scared of violence, understandably. And I was like, one day we're gonna tell their grandkids that like they saw this movie for the first time ever in this moment, in this space, in this year. and it kind of feels like every day is like that. And that is um, crushing in the weight of it for sure. It also feels a little bit like a calling to put ourselves, our bodies, our money, our scholarship, where our, where our philosophical and ethical commitments are. Um, and so, so um, yeah, that's, I guess that's my response. So just to remind folks, you're listening to COVID Calls. We're talking about teaching COVID-19 and the experience of educators at this time with Nicole Welk-Yeager and Sarah Raskin. Sarah, let me stay with you and, and ask you um, kind of a specific question um, about the courses you've been teaching, and then we can turn to sort of broader discussion about materials and how you, um, how you interrelate with students. But I know you've been teaching a COVID-19 policy course, and you've also been teaching a public health emergency preparedness course. The second one, I presume, is one you teach of longstanding. The first one is not one you would have taught before, I presume. Can you tell us a little bit about just these courses, who takes them, your approach? Sure. Yeah, thank you. So I um, have taught for a couple of years public health emergency preparedness, which is an online course delivered in the master's program at the Wilder School to students enrolled in the Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness Program. Um, these are many of them. In fact, I think all of them are professionals who are improving their skills. Um, so they will go on to continue being practitioners, um, you know, firefighters, clinicians, emergency managers, National Guards people, you know, you name it. Um, I have taught it from a very conventional for disaster type perspective for a couple of years. I weave in some of my personal ethical commitments around things like public health emergency ethics, um, the social determinants of health, um, racism. And so I, I weave those thematic areas in, but it's very much like a for disaster typology course and a real nuts and bolts skills course. Um, I was teaching it last semester when the pandemic began. And as you can imagine, we were trying to get through the course content that is about the non-pandemic topics while also really tracking on the pandemic very closely. And it just so happened that enrolled in the course, we had um, a uh, infectious disease doc who was completing an MPH. And so she had been tracking this very early. We also had uh, a National Guards person who was kind of on the front end of being called up in terms of logistics. And then we actually had um, the, the director of the emergency medicine department at BCU Health Systems. And so we were actually having this oh, wow. 
fascinating, like real time conversation. Oh, and we had some like um, EMTs. It was just, it was an, an unbelievable opportunity. And in some ways, it was the opportunity for them to talk in a way that they couldn't in their respective organizations because they aren't ever really in the same room. Um, obviously, this course will change moving forward. So I have to think about that. Um, and then our Dean Susan Gooden asked me late in the spring to teach a pandemic policy course that's a graduate seminar. It is cross-listed across our doctoral program and our uh, master's in public administration. And then I also have students from the MSW and MPH programs. And she really left it to me how I wanted to teach it. And so my approach is really to look at different content areas each week. So, you know, across the range. So kind of the original policy concern of, you know, testing, surveillance, case definitions, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, on through, you know, basic living needs, you know, housing, the CARES Act, et cetera, on through health services. And then I actually, um, having moved through all, or as we're moving through all these different um, areas of policy consideration, um, it occurred to me that we need to end this semester kind of feeling good because, you know, days are getting shorter, weather's getting colder. So in the last few weeks, we're actually going to spend some time in speculative fiction and Afrofuturism to imagine a world beyond the um, situation right now and think about how policy can be influenced by, um, by a belief in a better future world. So these students are um, public policy students, uh, graduate students mostly, and some undergraduates are mostly graduate students. All grad students, and and again, okay. like a, a lot of practitioners. So we okay. have students who are coming in from working in the health department, who are coming in from being like, um, you know, social workers in clinical settings. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm really one of the things that really strikes me about that you described. It sounds like it's going to happen in both classes. Is your own comfort with allowing who's in the room to perhaps shift the pedagogy a little bit to allow things to go off of that whatever script you had coming in, not all faculty can do that easily. It's it's hard, I think, for some, you know, people spend a lot of time planning, in some cases, every minute of what happens in a college course. I know I took some courses like that as an undergraduate, and I really appreciated that. But at the same time, it might not leave the kind of space to do what you're describing. I, just to throw one thing out, after September 11, I had the chance, um, I taught at John Jay College at that time in New York and um, part of CUNY and I partnered with um, Charles Strozier, another historian, and we taught a course about September 11. We taught it in 2004 and then we taught it again in 2010. We taught it three times in, in a seven year span. And that first one was still close enough to 9-11. And John Jay is a, is a university that has a lot of people who do policy, a lot of firefighters, a lot of police, a lot of people from other countries who are police and come and take a degree. And it, it something clicked just when you were talking, which is that a lot of times what we had planned for any given day had to be given up because the room became a sort of virtual expository of the different experiences that people had had, EMTs, cops, whatever. It didn't click to me quite that that's what we were doing until you just said that. I appreciate that. And if it's if it's okay if I kind of respond to that with something I thought sure, maybe sure. I'd yeah. talk about a different point. I um so I'm a second career academic. I was a public health practitioner for years. And so that means that I'm not even yet tenured. You know, I am, you know, 10 years older than your average first year, second or third year faculty member. And and I actually find that freeing in this moment because I feel that I'm able to take risks and be brave and be vulnerable in the classroom as a result of the present moment, kind of weaving together these multiple disasters that maybe I wouldn't have felt um, at a different time in my life. And I think, well, um, I have to respond to these students' lives because their lives are their real lives. Many of them have children. Many of them are first gen. Mm. Some of them are undocumented. You know, they are then going out into their careers and carrying forth what they learn in the classroom. And so if I'm not modeling it, I don't feel that I'm doing right by them. Um, and if that um, if that is a risk too great for my career, then that, I guess is something I'll live with the consequences of. But it just feels like an essential authenticity to me right now. Um, and I'll be glad to answer more nuts and questions, bolts questions about like, what does that mean for grading and stuff later? But I, I want to get out of the way and let Nicole, you know, jump in sure. as well. 
Yeah, Nicole, uh, same question. And you've had, uh, this has been a year on the move for you. So you've been teaching in at least two states by my count. And I was interested to talk with you about what that experience was like, but then also just like what classes have you been teaching and what are you preparing to teach right now? Yeah, so um, so being someone in transition and then, um, yeah, speaking to like the experience of coronavirus, going back to your first question, I defended my dissertation this year. And so that itself was a layer of experience that I then take as an instructor in the classroom as I'm looking at students to complete their projects, sometimes large projects <laughs> via Zoom via uh, well, online delivery. And and that's a challenge and something I reflect on a lot. Um, but uh, speaking to the the question at yeah, hand, the, just can you just what, repeat what it again? I, I lost it while we, we were talking to Sarah. Just to make a, a note yeah. of it that you have not been at NC State throughout this whole time, but you've been at other institutions as well. Yeah, so I was at Drexel University, and then I was also at Franklin and Marshall College, which is in Lancaster County, for those who are unfamiliar. Drexel's in Philadelphia, and then moving to NC State um, once I accepted the position down here. Uh, at Drexel, I taught history of public health. Drexel has quarters, and so I did the winter quarter of history of public health. And that ended <laughs> the same week that the university wasn't sure they were shutting down. So we ended up having the finals remotely, um, but I was able to have all of the class in person. Um, and then I worked with Michael Udell and we re recreated, redesigned the course for online delivery, asynchronous online delivery. And that was tough. Um, that was something that um, the course itself lends itself to discussion. And Sarah, I'd be really interested to hear how getting um getting that interpersonal discussion started and really fostering that in an online setting has been really difficult for me um it, it's it's easier in smaller classes but i went from having a 45 person class teaching history of public health at drexel and very small 10 person classes at franklin and marshall college teaching environment and human values and science and religion to then coming to nc state with 70, um, 80 person class, almost an 80 person class teaching US agricultural history. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, it, the, all of the courses cross cut each other in these really glorious and also terrifying ways um, when thinking also about the pandemic that we're living in at hand. Um, and so I had a, a very strange experience that I don't think a lot of people had going from in-person for the whole pandemic to totally online. I didn't have to do that transition. And then preparing to go to a large state school and being like, for a US Ag course, does coronavirus fit into this? Does my public health interest fit into us? And absolutely it does. I started the course with them reading Kate Brown's um, the coronavirus pandemic is not natural or it's not a natural pan, uh, pandemic. And the students loved that reading. And it just was very provocative. I have a lot of agriculture students in the class. I have a lot of farmers in the class. Now that it's all online, some of them have already told me they go out to the barn, they come back in and they tune in. Um, so it's um, I'm teaching a very different demographic of students than I did in my history of public health courses, which were much more... Um, undergrads who are interested in public health policy and also possibly being pre-med um, and now being with a whole bunch of, they call them Aggies here at NC State um, and being a first generation farm student myself in the past, now integrating all of these sources together in a conversation about food production today. It's, uh, it's, been, it's been a wild ride. <laughs> um, it's also a story of what it's like to be contingent faculty and to move about and move around and use different skills and transfer them in different ways. Um, and uh, to be able to sustain a narrative across courses that illustrates, I think, an importance in flexibility that Sarah was talking about in 
designing a course, but then also letting students kind of lead it based on their interests and their backgrounds. If I, I've just put up on the screen here um, a link to this New Yorker piece that you mentioned, Nicole, the Kate Brown, the historian at MIT who wrote this piece called The Pandemic is Not a Natural Disaster. Really great, really great piece. And it's interesting, you know, the perspective you've had is probably one that we haven't heard enough about, about contingent faculty who may be teaching. I mentioned John Jay College earlier when I was there, there were faculty who were teaching at three or four, I think they may have put a limit in now, but um, multiple different CUNY campuses, they're shuttling back and forth. I mean, this is the experience of, of higher education for many, many instructors, way too many instructors these days. But you've framed it slightly differently um, in that you were interested to see if the material you wanted to cover, how it would catch with different populations. And I can't imagine a more different population than the Drexel University student and the NC State student. Your average Drexel student is not going out to the barn uh, and then coming in. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that and maybe even to you named one specific material of uh, the New Yorker piece, but other kinds of Let's get into you know assignments and assessments and things like that a little bit that you found um, have caught. Maybe they've caught differently with, with different students, but that they've worked for you. Nicole, let me ask you that first, and then Sarah, I wanna ask you the same question. Yeah, so I, I think for each instructor, it depends on the discipline, but one of the things I've noticed work really well and worked well and transferred between Drexel, Franklin and Marshall and NC State, they're all very different institutions, was I had very open-ended um, short assignments throughout the course. And so they'd be almost weekly or bi-weekly depending on the course, how long the, um, the course was. And I called them applied history exercises. And what they were were primary source analysis, but relating them back to um, the present day and what's going on and contextualizing it within um, the, the given time period that they're having that source, but also how it relates to what we can learn from that for today's lessons. Um, and I crafted them for different types of sources, but they work really well because a lot of them are a choose your own adventure kind of mm -hmm. um, format where they get to choose the source that interests them and then write about it. It also works for various uh, writing skill levels because they're only 200 to 500 word analyses. So I can kind of gauge where everyone's at before I then have them develop what worked really what has been working really well for me. Also, open-ended final projects that can be podcasts, that can be video essays, that can be TikTok videos, and they're incredible. The students are so um, they. I, and, I, and I don't call them students, I call them scholars in my class. These scholars have a wealth of information and creativity and skill sets that I think are not always um, tapped into when you're just focusing on the exam and written format. But opening that up was crucial and essential for me to be able to juggle this. It's a hard to grade, <laughs> I'll say that, with 70 yeah. students. But Overall, I think that they've responded so, so well to the material and feel like they can own the course as their own and learn what they want to learn. My experience in assigning, I've never tried to do TikTok. You'll have to teach me how to, how to, do, how to do that. I'm interested to use it, I, but I've used podcasts before with students. And um, it's not, I think there may be a sort of a sense of like, oh, it's some new media thing. Like this isn't a real, the skills that they have to do they have to still do the research and the writing, but then they have to write a script and then figure out how to present a script and then do the technical elements. There's a lot going on there. And my experience was that is that it actually forced them into editing to think about editing in ways that they might not have thought if it was a, a merely a research paper. I don't know if you had similar experiences using sort of new media um, assignments, but I found them really, really demanding of students very demanding, but they also put their energy in it because they're invested in it. I had one student this past uh, public health history course, I'll just mention this really quickly, and then we can go to Sarah. Um, she is in design and architecture and designed a food truck museum 
based on the the course and it was just absolutely incredible the drawing is beautiful and she said i can share it and talk about it so i don't feel bad essential philadelphia project right there. it is it really is it was um, (laughs) it was really incredible and i was just so like i think i gasped when i opened the file i couldn't believe it yeah um sarah same question to you you know what kinds of just to get down into the weeds a little bit about assignments materials particularly in a time in which, um, like that Kate Brown piece, great piece to use. I've been using Ed Young's pieces in the Atlantic. They've been phenomenal. But then it's hard. I'm like, well, which one I'm going to use? Because my pers- my relationship to the first one he published is different now than it was when he published it, as you would expect in an unfolding disaster. We're still sense-making. That makes, that makes material selection really challenging, doesn't it? It's extraordinarily challenging. And, you know, like I was actually just thinking of the example of the continuing resolution that Pelosi and Mnuchin, you know, got to yesterday that's going to maintain, you know, a food aid for people. And so what I assigned even for next week's reading two weeks ago when I loaded it into the canvas is now a little outdated. And so, you know, I think that to some degree, part of the management here that we have to talk about is grace for ourselves, because, you know, I hear... I really appreciate all of Nicole's comments and they sound, they're very familiar to me as far as the kinds of assignments I'm doing. And part of that is grace for myself because if I become sick, if my little kid becomes sick or just like volume management, um, you know, I am not gonna have the capacity to always be on top of every single thing. And so there's this kind of constant um, dynamic between myself and material. So I too lean on trusted sources, right? So like Alexis Madrigal's work, Andy Slavitt's podcast, you know, these kinds of things. I trust these experts to be focused almost full time on, on their particular lane. That does mean that I don't wind up assigning as much peer reviewed literature as I would under usual circumstances, but that's okay with me because a future iteration of this class, there will be plenty of room for that. Right now, I really think that high quality journalism is primarily where it's at with some other peer-reviewed literature and, um, you know, reporting from different organizations. So um, that can be um, important material. I also try to really put a limit on how much I'm assigning because I want to respect my students' experiences. You know, something that I am aware of is that there are faculty who I think in a a bit of a panic about moving online have kind of doubled down on the, on the, hardness of the courses. I kind of hear that in the background and kind of invoking a mutual aid ethos. I feel like if I feel comfortable with more flexibility to give, it frees up the students to spend more time on the stuff that they're really kind of um, scared of. Um, And so I want to kind of go in two different really quick directions here just to also get back to your original question. Mm -hmm. I have failed to mention that I have guest experts in almost every class. So I'm currently teaching an undergrad research methods course. It's really a design course for our urban planning students and then a, a research design course. And then I'm teaching this graduate seminar. And in both of these courses, I figure no one wants to sit on Zoom for like three hours, which is like half listening to me blather on in some lecture and like half, you know, small group work where like, you know, people don't really, uh, you know, want to be there. And so I actually have lined up guest experts, many of whom I met through Twitter. So, you know, the unbelievable scholar Rhea Boyd was in our course uh, last two weeks ago with my graduate students talking about um, racism and the relationship between the pandemic and incarceration and and children. you know, in a couple of weeks, we're gonna have Amber Piet from Human Impact Partners. We had Beth Blauer from the Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center. And so they come in for about an hour that is a combination of like what they wanna say. And that is usually like the most, most current stuff that I have not managed to get into the Canvas board. And then the students like can ask questions. They can front load those questions on a discussion board. They can ask them live in the chat. And so really, you know, I have this kind of approach in which it's meant to be a conversation in every course between, um, I almost think of myself as like a curator or facilitator plus an actual expert plus the students. Um, And then I do wanna shift over to this question about assignments and whatnot. So 
I've been fascinated for a while about contract-based grading or labor-based grading in which the students and I, you know, I kind of propose what the semester will look like in terms of assignments. And we discuss early in the semester and then they agree and then we move forward with it. Um, this semester in both of my courses, I've committed that really these assignments are as much about helping them keep a forward moving pace as they are about like capital Q quality, you know, like I trust them to be the best experts on their lives. If they are only able to move from a knowledge that would be on a scale from like a four to a five and a half, given the circumstances of their lives, that progress is meaningful, not only because it demonstrates that their knowledge has improved, but also because it means that they have kept moving forward. And I think that's an important way to stave off um, some of the depression that I think we're really gonna see kind of widespread in, in the fall and winter, as I've already mentioned, with days getting shorter, you know, seasonal stuff as usual. And so for my undergrads, I have bite-sized assignments that are all focused around research methods. So. And, and really they are evaluated on quality completion in which submitting a, a an assignment that abides by the outline that I've set out for them is all that matters. And then we can heavily emphasize the feedback. For my graduate students, they're working toward a final project. I also offer the podcast option. I love it. If they wanna write speculative fiction, that's great. If they wanna do a graphic novel, welcome. All of it is welcome. Um, and I also think that one of the benefits of a labor-based or, or contract-based grading structure is that it relieves them of the anxiety about the grade on the like A to F scale. And instead, I can focus on giving them meaningful feedback. It keeps me engaged. It permits them to take risks. Maybe the risks don't like succeed in terms of like the way that we traditionally would think of success, but they're risks worth taking. And so that's kind of how I've set up the semester. So just to this point, um, Nicole, that Sarah's making about the, the mutual aid ethos and the contract-based grading, it indicates a rethink. Maybe Sarah, you were already, your mind may have already been in this way. I think for a lot of us, even those of us, speak for myself, who, who try to empathize with students, I'm not a person who um, tries to trip them up in the syllabus. And, and I don't know many faculty who are like that, frankly, but um, this time does demand something, even if you want it to be hard and say this has to be in and that has to be in. We're being confronted um, day by day, week by week by things um, that most of us haven't seen before. And we're not in the classroom to experience those things in a personal space. How do you see the role of the higher ed instructor changing either your own role or more broadly what you're hearing your, your colleagues going through? Yeah, I, I I really like Sarah how you talked about curating kind of a, a a course for 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 just seeing development of any sort. Um, if you're focusing on research methods, that's that's kind of where I'm going with my course as well. Um, if they can show that they can find a source on their own and say something about it and use another source to say that thing, that's pretty awesome right now. Um, but radical empathy and radical transparency on both ends is so crucial, I've noticed. And I think with radical transparency, being able to say, like, you're doing this task because I want you to learn X, Y, and Z. And if you say that up front, kind of with your grading contract, Sarah, I think that it um, opens up that flexibility and students feel like they can take more risks, especially at different skill levels and having different backgrounds. It's so important and then I think also having transparency about how we're doing as well. Um, a lot of academia, I think, is a performance, <laughs> performing that things are okay, especially in the wake of disaster. And I think being um, mindful and careful in certain moments is be like, oh, my um, my toddler's in the room right now. Um, oh, here's my, here's my pet. Oh, I'm a little not feeling great today. How's everyone else feeling? This isn't the best day because of X, Y, and Z. Even those little moments, students, I think, open up and feel like they can be a little bit more transparent with you as well. Because a lot of these, everyone is going through a lot. All of the people that we interact with as instructors, they might be on the front lines. That was how the case with some of my Drexel students. They were in the ER rooms working and they were having a really tough time. And 
you have to demonstrate some kind of flexibility with with this. And I wouldn't have known that unless they were transparent with me about that. And then with my ag students, they're also on the front lines. They're they're being the, they're the ones that are producing the food right now. And there's some stu students on the other side who are food insecure. And I think that it's crucial to open up about all of our insecurities and fears right now and bringing together this course or a class as a space to hope, feel hope and feel, feel a community where you don't get that all the time. Um, Sarah, did you, wanna, did you want to react to that? Good. I'm glad we got the, the proper yeah, I somebody. atmospherics there. Yeah. Right on cue. Yeah. Sarah, what, what do you think? I was just going to say, you know, the very first thing that I opened the semester with in both my courses is I said, I'm scared and let's do this anyway, mm -hmm. you know? Um, uh, and actually I showed a picture of my daughter who is a very daring, physically daring person, which I'm not. She is an eight year old who does high flying trapeze. And so, you know, my PowerPoint slide is this picture of this little person with a mask on up against the blue sky. And I'm like, I'm scared. I'm I'm scared when she does that, but I'm and I'm scared of this moment. And we're we're gonna do it together anyway. So let's go, you know. So one of the, one of the things that has that we study in disaster research is convergence, um, compound disasters, the converging of people at disaster sites. We think a lot. There's a lot of theory in the sort of traditional disaster sociology literature. Um, historians have worked on this too. Public health researchers have worked on this too. You know, it's, it's in, so I think it's interesting at a sort of theoretical level and we're going to learn a lot in this time about what happens when you, when we find out that the disasters we've treated separately are not in any way usefully separable. But what hasn't been talked about, I think nearly enough is the experience of the educator in that moment. Because again, I think we often, I'll speak for myself, if, if I'm creating a class and I want to, I do some, I do some damage to reality, but I do it for an analytical purpose, which is I say, let's focus on one aspect of, of Hurricane Katrina this week. Let's focus on another aspect of that. And I take as a given that, that the world is going to be more or less quiescent for more or less most of my students during the time that I'm teaching it. All that's out the window now. And to be teaching a COVID-19 course, which I also taught over the summer, that course really was a Black Lives Matter course. And after the first week, I tried to explain that to the students and where I was coming from, I kind of threw my hands up and I said, I can't tell you what I think about that. We just have to talk, we just have to experience this and talk about this and have an open, a lot of the class was open for them. And I, I just wanted to get some feedback from both of you because you're thinking deeply about these issues, but that it, it seems there needs to be an openness to letting the disaster be what it is. And that is that it may literally be changing and evolving and exposing things you hadn't thought you were gonna talk about in a, in a class. Sarah, I'd like to hear from both of you on this if I could. Sarah, can I start with you? Certainly, thank you for asking. Um, so um, I have um, long had an, an interest um, in critical race theory, in critical theory, in um, examining racism as a public health issue, but I haven't been very um, confident in expressing that. I've been, I thought of myself more as a learner than a leader in this way. Um, what I've been is, is a reader. And so when this moment presented itself as such, it was, um, it was discernible to me and I started kind of figuring out like, what the conversation was for me, what I felt a responsibility to so far as um, pedagogy, ethics, uh, resistance, for example, resisting this ridiculous mandate from the White House about critical race theory that I wholesale, um, I wholesale um, refute it not just for intellectual freedom, but because my students every single day live with the burden of racism and sexism and heterosexism, anybody who is intellectually honest about um, climate change and the effects of climate change, about police brutality. And I say that as a faculty member in a school that has a criminal justice program, you know, 
anyone who is intellectually honest about the pandemic has to be intellectually honest about the through line of racism across all of these things, of institutional racism, of white supremacy, even as the kind of conversation is framed out here about like my own anxiety that I'm not like producing enough research or being like the perfect instructor, that is a testament to how white supremacy sets up productivity as this um, aspirational goal above and beyond something like community care and how it centers individualism against community care. And so I actually have been um, emboldened by the moment to be more out, I guess I would say, in terms of the influence of these essential philosophies on my teaching, on my parenting, on my volunteerism in the movement, um, including, you know, like this summer and even now, my my daughter and and my niece and and my sister and my ex-husband, you know, and my stepdaughter, we are um, doing a variety of things in support of the movement because they feel essential to us and we're doing them safely with masks, you know, all that stuff. And so I'm going kind of far afield, but I also think that your question invites us to commit intellectually and ethically to our values in the moment in a way that um, has been very clarifying um, and, and means that we'll be able to say to the next generation, you know, here was the effort that we made in the moment. It it is never enough, but it's all that we could do. Um, you know, I'm like a really bad lapsed secular Jew, but there is that that statement about you know you don't have to finish the work, but you have to start it or you know commit to it somehow. And and that's really this is a very kind of like philosophical response that I'm giving you, but I, I think it's the question that you were asking. It is, and I learned from your response. Thank you, Nicole. Could if you'd like to address that that same question. Yeah, just responding to some of the things that Sarah said and kind of uh, just re-emphasizing that all of these disasters are overlapping in such a way that it can be difficult to, to sometimes mitigate, but it's also important for us to recognize that we are ourselves are in an insular community where we might be seeing these connections and interconnections and overlaps, but not everyone does. Um, so with, for instance, the climate crisis, environmental um, health injustice and um, health disparities, this may seem like clear connections to us as experts, but then in the classroom, it's important for us to demonstrate how those connections can be made quickly by a, another, by a student who's looking at it on the surface. Um, and it, it's, the, the 1619 project and the controversy around that came out, uh, the, the tweets that came out came out the same week that I had the 1619 project on the docket for my class at NC State. And 90% of the students in the class didn't know about this project, didn't know what it was for, and um, were skeptical of what it was meant to do. And as an instructor, I think it's also important um, as we're all living in a really tumultuous time, really uncertain time, but also from very different backgrounds to mediate challenging discussions across the aisle in a way that doesn't happen in our Congress and Senate right now. Um, and that's really challenging. It takes a lot of flexibility and care uh, and confidence. <laughs> um, but I think as part of that, um, all of those things you were saying, Sarah, just uh, also like teaching it, doing it, and also bringing out um, the, the care that, that comes with that. Just to remind folks, uh, you're listening to COVID Calls. We're talking with Nicole Welk-Yeager and Sarah Raskin about teaching in COVID-19. We're almost up on time. I did want to try to get one more question in, and it really connects nicely with what you were just saying, Nicole. This sense of um, heightened responsibility, um, the role of the scholar in society at, at this time, anybody who has a sort of expertise in any of the 
which at this point, I can't imagine anybody who's not qualified is as complicated as this disaster is. Um, but I wonder what you think about, you know, we still face these issues of inequality has been exposed at every level by the pandemic. And that's also includes higher education in terms of access, in terms of digital divide, in terms of students who do make it to college and yet we make it so hard for them to succeed. Um, all of that has been thrown into the open right now. I, I guess I'd like to hear from both of you how you're thinking about your how your pedagogy can reach beyond the classroom. And it's a fair answer to say, I haven't had time for that now, um, but I'm wondering what you even think about it because I, I'll just say like in history, we talk a lot about, you know, we should all do public history. And then the pressures of our profession do everything it can to keep us from doing that because it's it's politically risky in some parts of the country. It's if to do it well, it's incredibly time consuming. You have to build relationships. Um, and then what if you really like it and then you don't do your conventional scholarship and then you're not. So there's so many barriers to it. And yet I feel right now it's demanded, but I'm not quite sure how we maximize our potential in these spaces. I guess I'd like to hear what you're thinking about that. Sarah, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I appreciate the question. Um, I have at least two different thoughts. One is that um, I think to me that one of the most heartening observations of the moment is how generous people are being. So you are you have literally been doing 133 episodes that themselves could be used for teaching in the future. I'm thinking of like Seamus Khan organizing all these sociologists to pre-record lectures that people can, you know, I'm I'm like, and of course the science, the collaborative science globally is, so I think that the generosity of people bringing their professional selves, you know, the, the Under the Blacklight series from the African-American Policy Forum, like there are so many resources that really allow this curatorial approach that can then kind of free us up to do different things in the future. So, so one of the ways that I think that we are doing it, not just can do it, but are doing it is exactly what you're doing and exactly what other people are doing. Um, and then I also think that, you know, one has to think about the long game. So tenure is like a great kind of level set on that, right? Like there's this, you know, progress toward tenure. And then if you get it, you're kind of locked in. And so, you know, what are the activities that are worth the risk until you cross that moment? And then what are the activities that are kind of worth the risk beyond that, depending on, again, kind of going back to this like mutual aid ethos, like what can an associate professor get away with that an assistant can't? And also, you know, depending on what kind of school you're in, are you in a Slack where you're teaching a 3-3 and you really don't have the bandwidth to be doing public history or can you integrate a project into the classroom. Like if I remember correctly, Nicole is gonna do next semester on her syllabus. Or, you know, for me, I'm in a, I'm, I'm in a deliberately community engaged research consortium. And I have a dean who supports research on social equity and racial equity. And so when I started talking with some folks at one of our local museums and other universities in Richmond about participating in a public history project, an oral history project of COVID, like, I don't know what the scholarly legacy of that is going to be, but I think that the people who evaluate me internally, I, I know that they think it's a meritorious project. And of course, I've got to do all the other things. You've got to you know, publish and all that stuff. But I, I don't think it'll be seen as a distraction. I think it'll be seen as exemplifying community engagement. And I'm in a privileged position where I can use that privilege to drive these things forward. And then hopefully when I get tenure, I can do even more of them. So... Yeah. I love how you're thinking multi-scalar from the individual class and the assignment out to the sort of broader professional commitments at this time. I, Nicole, I, I'd like to sort of pick your brain on this too and see how you're thinking about the scholar in the public sphere at this moment. Yeah, I, I think Sarah spot on with st talking about it starts in the classroom. We have to constantly remind ourselves, I think, that it's not an instructor-student relationship always. It's a colleague-to-colleague -colleague relationship. You're, you're cultivating a, a potential future colleague, might not be in your field, but might be um, thinking critically in a similar way or maybe challenging you in different ways. And um, for my students, I, I have them also uh, gather oral histories from their families. And I'm really excited to do that at the NC State level because of the farm families around here. I think one of the things that we're thinking, I'm always thinking about is social media is a great way to get 
information across. And it's also a place where a lot of misinformation gets uh, spread as well. And it's hard to mitigate, which I'll just plug, if you haven't done the Clemson University Spot the Troll quiz yet, please drop everything and do it now. Clemson University Spot the Troll, really important social media practice. Um, I had my students do it and just, but not all of my students are on social media and a lot of them have a lot of trouble getting online access. And so talking to people and I think when we're thinking about public history, I think we need to think about it in different ways. There's different scales, but at the individual level outside the classroom, just as a day-to-day -day person who's thinking critically, if you can have a challenging conversation with another person, that's also, um, that, that's also friendly and demonstrating empathy. I think that's that go, can go a long way, um, especially in, in various different uh, social circles. So social media, in person, thinking of reaching out in, in different ways, even printed media, printed newspapers, don't forget, like I, um, I've been thinking a lot about this, especially with my background researching with Amish farmers. A lot of the information they get is from the agribusinesses that they interact with. Um, so it's important to bear in mind who gets what kind of information and who's willing to listen um, and leave waiting for those openings and tech going towards them. You've been listening to COVID Calls and you can catch COVID Calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow. Please join me. I'll be talking with Kristen Urquiza, whose father, Mark Anthony Urquiza, died in the springtime. You may have heard her speak very movingly at the Democratic National uh, Convention back in August. I'll be very happy to welcome her to COVID Calls tomorrow. And what a great illuminating conversation today with Nicole Welk-Yeager and Sarah Raskin. Thank you both so much for your time and for your thoughts today. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you. This is great. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, five o'clock.